The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Thank you for joining us for a very special lockdown episode of Dietary Requirements, the spin-off's food podcast. Just two days before the country went back into level four lockdown, we had the privilege of recording in front of a live audience for Visa Wellington on a Plate at Parrot Dog Brewery in Lyle Bay. This is the second episode from the event. But this conversation was with two very experienced Wellington hospitality personalities, Calder Haynes and Dominique McMillan, and of course our very own Sophie Gilmore as well. It's a really great conversation, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you're all coping okay without your favourite restaurants, bars and cafes, and using this time to cook some amazing things. Enjoy! Tēnā koutou katoa, no mai, haere mai ki Dietary Requirements, a very special live version of the Spin-Off's Food Podcast. My name is Simon Day and I am your host. I'm joined, as always, by Sophie Gilmore, my co-host. Alice is sitting this one out. Kia ora, Simon. Sophie is both panellist and, and host today because we're talking about the very real... Uh, challenges that are facing the hospitality industry at the moment that have really sort of come to to a sharp point with the the pressures and challenges of, of COVID-19 and we're so lucky to be joined by um, two really special people from the Wellington uh, hospitality industry. First on my left is Calder Haynes. There's a beautiful little intro that Alice helped write for me. An influential figure in the Wellington food scene for nearly 30 years. She learnt her trade at the Brooklyn Cafe and Grill in the early 90s. Uh, at Nico Cafe, she ran it with our business partner Paul Schrader, who's out, out front and has been very helpful for me getting a table at Rita last night. Uh, Calder championed local and seasonal before it was cool and made a generation of Wellingtonians obsessed with... Uh, Kidgery. Kidgery. Thank you, Sophie. And apparently your cheese scones are really good, but I'm, I'm of the belief that no scone is a good scone. And you're wrong about that. Well, that's another entire podcast, I think. Calder and Paul opened Rita in a historic cottage on Arrow Street in 2017 with an ever-changing ingredient-led set menu that's made it one of the best restaurants in New Zealand, and I can attest to that having dined there last night. Thank you so much for joining us, Calder. Thank you. It's very kind words from Alice. They're the, they're the truth, wow. though, which makes it easy. <laughs> and one, one over, we have uh, Dominique McMillan, a new Wellingtonian, 
Uh, Dominique has recently, with her chef husband Hayden, taken over at Floriditas. They were convinced to move back to New Zealand from Melbourne, where Hayden had opened the beloved Brunswick restaurant Etta. Did you, what was your hand at Etta? Uh, well, we, we, we kind of did it all together. Yeah. I was running the front of house, working the front of house, all the way up until I was about eight months pregnant and could no longer fit between the tables. So, um, yeah. And now back in New Zealand with Hayden and with little Sasha. Yeah, with little Sasha, yeah. Back in New Zealand, uh, we touched down uh, two months before lockdown and we took over flows about six weeks before we went into lockdown last year, so. The Dom's worked in restaurants in Melbourne and it celebrated Auckland restaurants, Depot and Meredith's. Um, and they took over six weeks before lockdown, level four lockdown happened. And that's really allowed, you know, obviously a terrible, terrible thing to happen, but at the same time, uh, it's allowed you to sort of drive innovation and redevelopment at the way Floridita's works, which I think leads me into the first question on this topic of what does the future of hospitality look like. Is, has COVID had some sort of silver lining for the industry? Has it exposed things that you need to change that you could have kind of swept under the rug previously? Has it has it made you innovate and sharpen your thinking on sort of certain things? We'll go with Dom first. Uh, oh, absolutely, 100%. COVID, um, for us especially, but I know for a lot of other restaurateurs around Wellington, has been an incredible silver lining. First and Firstly, just because of logistically, it just gave us the opportunity to stop and take some space away from the doing of the restaurant and actually start to think about everything, business, um, rosters, menus. Are we, are we still on the right track? Are we still heading in the right direction? Um, and having that space away from the actual day-to-day -day grind of service allowed us some, you know, free bandwidth to make some important decisions. Um, and then coming out of lockdown and into, back into the real world, the, you know, the immigration implications of COVID and the borders had an immediate and incredibly impactful, um, you know, effect on our day-to-day. -day. And that absolutely led us to, you know, revisit the um, the kind of game plan and figure out how to do things differently so that we could still continue to trade. Um, what are yeah. you doing differently? What does that change look like? Uh, well, for us, there were a couple of key changes that we made, and I think we've spoken about it, but we came straight out of lockdown and altered our night menu completely um, because of so many different pressures that we were under, we could no longer sustain a nightly spend per head of $20, for example, for the overheads, for the staff that we had, for all of it. Uh, so we made the decision immediately to axe a la carte and implemented a two and three course menu at nighttime, which was hugely beneficial. And I mean, I guess that was, you know, watching Rita and how they do their thing. It was a really, really appealing model to us because it does allow the chefs to create something succinct. It minimizes wastage. It allows the staff to learn a type menu. 
Um, you can run a really tight wine list, uh, and ultimately your spend per head is higher. So and you, are you still doing that? Oh, absolutely. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, so evening service only. Yeah, evenings, every evening service, only a two- or three-course menu. And, I mean, it seems restrictive, but it's really not because we tell guests it's your choice. You can do two- or three-course, or you can come back in the daytime because we're open all the time. Um, but for us, that was a key change that we made that changed everything. Um, and the other huge change that we've made at Flows is um, shining the spotlight on the front-of-house team and the kitchen team and culture and um, creating a team of people that want to be there because it's so hard to find staff. Once you have them, you need to keep them. And that's the hardest part about this business. So I actually asked Ludo and, and Lisa last night, two amazing um, servers at, at Rita who looked after us, how do we keep you? How do we keep you in the industry? What do you need to think of this as a, as a long-term career? And they said money. They wanted th this to be able to compete with a job in advertising or a job in a law firm or a job uh, in a, an accounting firm for that basic thing you need to survive, which is, which is money. You can create the most amazing culture and it can be the most vibrant, exciting place to work. But if you can't pay people well, they don't, they're often left with no choice but to find something else. I think How it's a combination though, right? Because we would say, um, we would often say, oh, in hospitality, you have to love it to be here. You know, and it's like, we'd say that like it's a badge of honour. It's like, but also it would be nice if you got paid well. <laughs> you know, so it's, I, think, I think you want both. You want people to be able to pay, be paid really well and you want the, um, them to love what they're doing too. But how do, we, how do we get that wage better for our hospitality stuff? And how do we, you know, know that they're doing what they need to preserve it as well? Right, I mean, that's a pretty complex, that's a pretty complex question, right? Yeah. Um, for us, just going back to that set menu model, I think that has been quite liberating for us in terms of kind of rethinking our cost structure. Um, being, simplifying things has meant that we can condense our effort, our, our labour costs, but also our food costs as well. We're not, like you say, we're not, we're not wasting food. But above and beyond that is really the idea that we, we, we're saying to the dining public of Wellington, if you want to come to us, it's going to this is the deal, you know. So we put the onus back on the customer to accept the deal before they've even come in the door. Once they're in the door, it's really, the set menu allows us to uh, really concentrate on them having a good time, really concentrate on pacing and executing the menu as best as we can. So then it's more about the relationship that we have with them and the experience they've had with us. Um, and I think if they choose to come back, they're not thinking about money. They're thinking about the feeling they had when they left the restaurant. Yeah, it's like they're rewarded for their commitment with the consistency that you're able to provide because of the commitment that they've made. It's right. really smart. But right, but then we've got a chance to communicate our values to them about, you know, the produce we choose or, um, you know, the way we go about doing things. And I think you see this across other industries that um, consumers are buying into um, buying products that represent more than just that product. They are actually buying those products because of the, you know, the values that that product represents. And it's not just a marketing spin. It's actually that people, you know, want to invest in regenerative agriculture, for instance. Yeah, they're like voting with their feet. Yeah, they're voting yeah. with their feet. So if we can help people... Um, I mean, it, it can't just ever be about price. We have to help people choose 
choose an experience and therefore choose the skill that we bring bring to that experience and create value from that. Do you think that attracts better staff? Well, I hope so. Yeah. Um, I mean, more engaged staff. I shouldn't say better. I mean, engaged, I yeah. think if I worked somewhere and I had a better understanding of the values that the business had and I felt aligned with those values, then I'd be more inclined to feel connected. And if I was connected, right. I'd be more committed and then I'd probably be loyal and a bit more long-term. Well, it all helps, doesn't it? Well, I yeah. mean, yeah, I think at the moment, um, we were just speaking about this before, but we have such a scramble going on in Auckland because we don't have any staff. And I would love to spend more time on ingredients and values, and but I feel like all I'm doing is putting up job ads and interviewing and hiring and, you know? So That's I think, right. I think you... It's like a, the success of it begets more success and attracts better people. So, it's, yeah, it's really clever. Is that the biggest issue for you three at the moment with running your operations as staff? We just spoke about it. Sounds like the staffing crisis is worse in Auckland. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's having, and having just been to Auckland and, and knowing a bunch of restaurateurs in Auckland, that is absolutely their biggest headache. Um, here in Wellington, we don't have the, the pinch isn't as tight. I guess it makes we me have feel the, so happy for you. Honestly, I guess we have the we have the added benefit of being in a university town, and I know for us specifically, we're in the middle of the city, uh, middle of Cuba Street. So it's location-wise, it's a very attractive place to work if you are, you know, a student or um, somebody who likes to be in in the middle of it. Raising capital or taking your business to the world. Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right, and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call, or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. So for us, attracting staff is not so hard, but it's the keeping staff and it's also keeping staff happy and keeping them engaged and keeping them feeling content and satisfied with their role. That's the hard part. And I feel like the onus has shifted. That's another thing that COVID did was it kind of showed us that we really had to shift the focus from well, I mean, recruitment, we're always going to have a focus on recruitment, but we really had to start investing more in things like training. Retention. And retention, absolutely. And I so was that thinking that before when Simon asked about the COVID silver linings. If you'd asked me that question 12 months ago, I would have been like, woo, yeah, yeah. so many silver linings. Yeah, yeah. And now I feel like there's this lag that's just hitting us, and yeah. it's to do with the way that people are coping. And like you say, it's there's a lot more obligation on us now to keep them happy in their roles oh, absolutely. and to find cover for them if they've got an assignment yeah. or all of these things that we don't really have the resource to do. There's definitely no. been a shift because for whatever reason, people are not coping as well. They're sort of feeling overwhelmed and they're feeling a bit stressed and yeah. I think that's quite time consuming. Everyone's got a far shorter fuse. Yeah. And I mean, that I can say that for guests as well. Like, we've noticed that across the board. Everyone's got a far shorter fuse. I mean, it's a, and I mean, we're, we live in a pretty insular, safe place, you know, 
compared to the rest of the world. Um, but there's still this uneasy tension, you know, suddenly there's a drop of COVID in some sewage water or whatever, and everyone starts to kind of freak out. And Some crazy rumours yeah. start flying around. And bookings the, the start the to cancel, and people get really sort of nervy, um, which is completely understandable, but it does put us at... It's a fucking hard position to be in when you're just sort of at the mercy of... I mean, we all are. I mean, this is a we we are, we are a, we offer a luxury luxury product. We're a, it's a luxury to go out and dine. It's a luxury to buy coffee. It's a luxury to you know go out for brunch. So I'm under no illusions that we are not an essential service by any means. So we are the first to feel that drop in business. I mean, you know, the guy, the, the Sydney guy who came into Flows, who had COVID, and thank God he was vaccinated, didn't shed the virus. He did everything. He went everywhere for like a whole weekend. And there wasn't a drop of COVID in the in Wellington after he left, but that had an immediate impact on our business, like 94% drop in revenue immediately. We had to close, so it's a really it's a tricky position to it's a tricky time to be in this industry, but it is forcing us to find new solutions. And I think honestly, one of those solutions is we need to figure out how to be better employers, how to, how to, how to retain better, you know? I wonder, I wonder if we need to be better at communicating with the public too. Like I've, like you said, with guests having a shorter fuse, I've noticed like someone will come to Fatima's, which is our business in Auckland, and if they get home and the staff have left their fried potatoes out of their bag, like they are going wild. Like it's, it's honestly as though you've ruined the person's life. And it's obviously upsetting and it's super disappointing when you let someone down. But there seems to be... Um, you know, there's a bunch of complaints about how it. I had to wait for my food for 25 minutes. And you're like, you feel like going, mate, I'd love to tell you about the two staff that didn't show up for work today. The fact that I've got seven job ads up, you know? So I think there's quite a lot involved for us to actually pull it off. It's like a show. And, like, the show must go on even when, when the opening hours start if things aren't perfect. And so I think maybe we've got to be better at communicating with the public about... Um, the, the realities of running yeah, a restaurant. Yeah, or just, just being a bit more understanding when things don't go right, because we want them to go right more than anything, you know? We're just as gutted as you are. Calder, basically, that ties into what you talked about earlier about the role of taking uh, your customers on the journey and to understanding what it is you're doing and why you want to do it better. Do you still think there's a big gap, though, in the New Zealand's public's appreciation of how expensive food is and how hard it is to run a restaurant that makes money, how razor thin those profit margins can be? Perhaps, and I, and I do just want to reflect on what you said in terms of um, it being a show. I mean, there's a real tension there, isn't there, in, in being real about how hard it is if you're inviting, trying to invite someone into your space for a luxurious experience and where they need to relax. Whether your story, that kind of story, should be something on their mind is, is you know, there's quite a lot of tension around that, yeah, right? Keep your dirty laundry out there. Exactly. Well, I don't know. The, I don't I mean, want to know. Yeah, I just want to have my nice dinner. Totally. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it wouldn't hurt for people to understand all of the intangibles, all of the stuff they don't see. Yeah. I think the skill as well that's involved in in what uh, you do running a restaurant from from both sides of the pass. There's, um, you know, a, a huge amount of skill that goes into being a, a waiter. Um, you know, the, the knowledge my, my homie Ludo had last night to share with me about where things came from, about the, the wine from the Becker Valley that we drank uh, in Lebanon. Like, it was, it was really, really 
deeply knowledgeable, but made our experience so much better. I think that's another opportunity that's um, being missed. And somehow we let hospitality fall by the wayside and it became a, a side hustle. But there's a really lost um, appreciation for the link between what you're doing now and what you're going to do next. And it's really strong. Like you and I have both worked in law firms and we've chosen to work in hospitality. And there's quite an interesting, um, I often say I think that I've learned more from being a waiter that I've applied to the rest of my life than I did from being a lawyer. And it's, it's weird that people perceive it the other way. You know, like how do you work in a team? How do you walk up confidently to someone that you don't know and speak to them? Um, what about when you're under pressure and how you pulled together and there's so many things that you learn from hospitality that the my team that are studying graphic design don't realize that that's going to make them be the preferred candidate in their next job if they roll up their sleeves and take from hospitality what it's got to offer them but we somehow haven't I think when the wages got low we didn't communicate that really well and it became like this um, minimum wage thing that people didn't want to associate with and you know, it's it's putting pressure on our industry with the rising wages, but I'm totally here for it, and I want us to feel proud of the minimum wage in New Zealand. It's higher than it is in Australia, and it's definitely putting us under pressure, but if we can kind of work with our employees together to bring more value to the equation, then it is a win-win. And do you feel hopeful about where we're going? Because it's been a really tough 18 months. But like we talked about, there has been silver linings. Are you excited about what you see in the future or is it quite nerve-wracking? I guess that feeling of uncertainty hasn't really gone away and it's hard to feel like we should be planning to expand or do exciting things. It feels very much like we just have to keep riding it out. You must get sweaty looking over the Tasman at uh, Australia. <laughs> it's not fun at all, is it? Yeah, and I don't know how... The resilience required um, to count, go in and out of lockdown like that is, is staggering, really. Yeah. And I don't know whether I could do it. And yeah. we've just been so lucky. You know, you yeah. talked about this guy who went to, like, every single place in Wellington. To not have anyone infected was so, I so mean, lucky. Yeah. And I just hope that luck lasts, right? Because this is pretty... This is a pretty fun. This is a pretty good time hanging out, having some beers. Yeah, I listened to a radio I, I don't listen to talkback radio but somehow I got in the car the other day and it was on and someone some Australian guy rang up and was just bollocking Mike Hosking about bang, uh, bagging the Prime Minister and he was going mate look at the life that you're living I haven't left my sofa in six weeks and when I thought about it I, I, I think despite all of the struggle and I don't feel super optimistic at the moment I feel the same like we're kind of on a treadmill but to to appreciate the lifestyle that we've been able to live um, has to be you know, something to be grateful for. I feel pretty hopeful about the future for hospitality, especially those who work in hospitality, only because I think COVID's forced us to hold a mirror up to ourselves as an industry and ask ourselves some pretty fucking hard questions. You know, like we've had to address big questions about culture and um, what staff should and shouldn't be expected to do and, um, you know, working hours and working conditions and... Um, you know, sexism and misogyny that's existed in restaurants for, you know, ever. Um, all of that rubbish has, has, has always been there and it's always just been a little bit swept under the carpet. Um, but I'm certainly finding now with the younger people who are coming through, they have far less tolerance for that stuff. They're very um, sure about 
what they want out of life and also what they want out of a workplace. And if I can't give that to them, they're just going to take their talent elsewhere. So it really is up to us to sort of clean up that aspect of HOSPO and try and turn, to try and, you know, turn hospitality into an industry that people want to be in. Kelda, does the kitchen feel different to when you, culturally, to when you first started? Oh, I could tell you some stories. Go on, go on. <laughs> tell I, us a story. Well, I'm going to keep some, keep the names to myself, but I, I think the kitchen, kitchens in Wellington, when I started out in the 90s, they were really brutal, horrible places, actually. Um, I found a real refuge in Lois's kitchen, and she ran things in a, in a completely civil way that um, was unlike any other kitchen of the time. It's so funny that it was probably, like, futuristic at the time oh. to treat each other kindly. Oh, <laughs> oh uh, yeah. And so I feel really lucky that I came across her, um, and I walked out of plenty of jobs. <laughs> yeah, um, but it made me kind of determined to, you know, change it for the better, I think, um, and to create an environment, you know, that is a bit more friendly to women and, and people who don't necessarily fit the mould of what a chef should look like, you know. There was quite a revolting kind of front-of-house, back-of-house divide when I first started, like, um, probably nearly 20 years ago, and I worked in the front-of-house side of restaurants, um, right through university, right through even when I was working as a young lawyer. And I remember being called a plate taxi and people just, like, abusing you if anything went wrong. Or And it was just wild that the people on this side of the past could speak to you because you were on the other side in that way, like a hierarchy. But I've, I've really noticed that that's dissolved. Yeah, I think, and I think that's really key, you know, to a successful restaurant. There's just no way you can have a divide like that and... Um, have something that works well. And that's a big part of your cultural uh, revolution, Dom, is, is breaking that barrier down a bit and building the relationship between chefs and floor staff, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, honestly, my job at the moment, I call myself the culture coach at work, but it's really to instigate conversations about how do we have assertive communication? Um, tell me about where your mental health is at at the moment. Um, are you sleeping well? Are you eating properly? Have you got resources around you to support you if you can't handle your workload like you know and we we have we've normalized these kinds of conversations at work now and it and it I've noticed when when staff come in who haven't worked with us before other restaurateurs come in it seems a bit lovey-dovey it seems a bit fluffy and I tell them that's because that's the shit that we're made of you know and and for so long we've been forced to ignore that sort of human aspect of ourselves and just put our bodies and minds on the line for this job um, but the tides change now and the I mean the young I've got to give it to these young kids who we have coming in these 17 18 year old kids who are very open about conversations that you would never have in a restaurant I mean fuck, certainly when I was first starting, you would never go up to your restaurant manager and say, like, I'm, battle I'm battling with my mental health at the moment. Um, but we try really hard to normalise that at work because it, it creates a safe, where, a safe space where the staff can be fully themselves and ultimately it makes them feel like they belong and that they belong to something and that gives me longevity ultimately it gives me engagement and longevity I felt really lucky to briefly witness that uh, the other night at Flo's when I saw this stunning roast duck staff meal 
and all this staff sat around, and, the, and this young man told Zenith, all Zenith, his... His name's Zenon. Zenith told all the staff about what he'd been up to that day in Te Reo Māori, and then he translated it again into English for them. And the best part was how he... Um, told everyone that his girlfriend wasn't speaking to him at the moment because he hadn't been texting her back enough. So <laughs> that, that really honesty good. and that openness, I think, is really, really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I think that makes me feel really um, optimistic and, and hopeful. I, I the, the struggle I'm finding with a team of 45 that are probably the same age as the team that you're speaking about is... I don't know if I've gone too far that way. You know, I feel like now their business is becoming my problem all the time and I've got oh, it's 40, a fine line 45 for sure. people and I can't manage your fact that your mum doesn't want you to stay home this week or that you're, you know, there's, it, it, it feels to me almost um, like because burnout and overwhelm is becoming such a regular part of dialogue that they're panicking about um, getting burnout and feeling overwhelmed, whereas I don't think that hard work should be the antidote to mental health. I think that they coexist quite nicely, and if you're not coping mentally, then sometimes it's nice to go to work and be distracted and do something that makes you feel valued, or, you know, people say go and do something for someone else. That's kind of what going to work is in hospitality, you know? They come in the door hungry and they leave replete, and that's a really nice transaction. So, I don't know, I'm trying to trying to harness at the moment how to try and communicate that the thing that you're doing here is really valuable and you should take pride in it and um, it's not always ideal work is inconvenient right but to me it doesn't feel as though the focus is on the money anymore it feels as though the focus is on um, there's quite a strong desire to avoid discomfort and if people are feeling uncomfortable they don't want to come to work and I want them, like you say, to be able to bring their whole selves to work. But I still want them to come to work. And, and actually work, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it's We're tricky. approaching our, um, our time limit. But I wanted to talk about what I think is the biggest silver lining out of COVID for me and the hospitality sector is how much I've realised that I need restaurants and bars um, and how much I need to be around other people. And I think in the lucky situation we're in, there is this opportunity to remind people of what you, you what you provide. You know, you're not just feeding us, but you're feeding our soul as well. And that opportunity to to hang out with each other is really, really special. And I think that's the most important part of what uh, re- restaurants and bars and cafes do. And I think you're both very, very good at it. And I really hope that you are, you know, able to continue to do it and and, and make a little bit of money as well. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> Fingers I, um, crossed. Yeah, I feel really hopeful for the future, um, especially in Wellington. I mean, I'm excited about what I can see happening in Auckland. Um, there's some amazing eateries being opened by some really young and, you know, um, progressive yeah. people. Um, I just hope the dining population is there to sustain everybody because we need that for us to, you know grow and, and, and get bigger and eventually, you know, have the kind of dining scene that places like Melbourne or Sydney or Tokyo or London have. But yeah, it does start with creating those authentic restaurants where the human connection is not just between the waiter and the guest, it's also between the waiter and the boss and the, and the waiter and the chef and the dishwasher and the boss. You know, it really has to start with us for it to be authentic out into the public. But further to that, I always feel like a restaurant's are, um, almost like the focus point for a whole series of relationships that 
include the staff and the customers, but also um, suppliers, you know, like-minded suppliers. Um, for want of a better word, you kind of create a little bit of a community there, and I think that's part of what you're talking about. Certainly, you know, um, in level three when we were doing takeaways, people were just so incredibly um, grateful to get our offering um, and to feel like they're claiming that connection. It was really heartening. Yeah. That, that's, that's to me what it is, a connection between people, between your food, between the food chain. And, and the, the way that you offer that, I think, helps us understand you know, what it is and why we eat things and, and who we are a bit. And I'm, and I'm really grateful for that. So, and I'm very grateful for you guys joining us today. Um, I feel lucky to have such um, prestigious panelists show up for our little podcast. Uh, please do subscribe to Dietary Requirements on all good podcast providers. Uh, listen to all the back episodes, five stars, share it with your mum. Uh, and hopefully Matt seemed very keen to do this again next year, so we might see you back here for Wellington on a Plate uh, another time. And thank you all in the audience uh, for joining us. If you'd put your hands together for our wonderful panellists, I'd be really grateful. Really big shout out to um, the team at Parrot Dog for letting us be here today. Uh, shout out to Jono and Tai for looking after the sounds. Shot to my homie on the ones and twos for being real patient with his vinyl. And uh, I hope you all have a really lovely day in this beautiful Wellington afternoon. Uh, Kakite. Talo for Lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.